Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host, Eric Raskin. I'm Kieran Mulvaney. I gotta say, Eric, man, this feels great, doesn't it? I mean, it's Sunday night. We've made it through a five-fight pay-per-view card. The sun is still shining. It's a beautiful day. There's plenty of time to go for a walk or have a drink or even go for a walk and then have a drink or even have a drink while going for a walk. I mean, it is just the evening is ahead of us. I mean, isn't it fantastic? Oh, (laughs) right. (laughs) Only one of us is in the Alaska time zone. Oh, well, sucks to be you. (laughs) It sure does. You said it was Sunday night. Not where I am. It's Monday morning. (laughs) Clock check, uh, 12.37 a.m. where I am as we uh, begin recording uh, this podcast. (sighs) Same right, Kieran. Uh, The good good news is the fight's kept me up, entertaining enough. Uh, If if, uh, Guillermo Regandiao had been on that undercard, (laughs) you'd be texting me frantically right now to start the podcast, and I'd be dead to the world, my phone uh, buzzing fruitlessly. But uh, no, I I made it. I uh, made myself a uh, homemade caramel latte just before the fights began, and uh, I shared a photo of that latte on Twitter. And uh, shout out here to at Womble1010, who sent me a message on Twitter dubbing it a washed Achino. Brilliant. That's what I was drinking, a washed Achino. And I just don't understand, with that kind of social media content, why we don't have the profile of Jake Paul. I just, I, <laughs> It's a mystery to me. I just don't know what the kids want these days. <laughs> Not us. Not us, Not Karen. A, certainly not us. Uh, but listeners to the podcast, well, you're, we're what you have. And um, coming up, uh, we are going to look at some of the week's news, uh, including some good news for Clarissa Shields and some bad news for Jamal Charlo. Uh, Eric is going to set my top five challenge for next week. Uh, we have a great interview coming up with our friend Fred Sternberg. He's the longtime boxing publicist, uh, including most notably for Manny Pacquiao and Freddie Roach. But first, let's go to Cleveland, Ohio, virtually at least, where on Sunday night, Jake Paul survived a rocky third round of what probably should have been a knockdown to outpoint Tyron Woodley and move to 4-0 in what passes for his professional boxing career. Yeah, he uh, faced by far the toughest test of that boxing career, low bar, of course, uh, but he did get a real test uh, from Tyron Woodley, uh, who took Jake Paul the eight-round distance, had him wobbly a time or two, as you said, could have maybe gotten credit for a knockdown. Uh, Woodley ended up pushing Paul to a split decision in their cruiserweight bout atop a Showtime pay-per-view card. Uh, Paul winning by scores of 78-74 and 77-75, while the third card went 77-75 for Woodley. I'm not so sure about that Woodley card, but certainly he won rounds. Paul looked gassed at times, but he dug in and fought when he had to. Neither guy officially went down. Paul generally outworked the former MMA fighter, who just didn't let his hands go enough, as Brian Campbell kind of warned us was a possibility that he had been unable to pull the trigger lately, or I should say warned me uh, in our private messages. Um, Activity and jabbing were probably the difference in this fight in helping Jake Paul pull out the win. Let's call this what it was. These were relative boxing novices. This was a club fight, effectively. But it was competitively matched and hard fought. Uh, Kieran, first off, how did you score it? And then what were you impressed by with both fighters and what were you not so impressed by? I scored it 77-75 for Jake Paul. I gave Tyron Woodley the last two rounds as well as the third. If you had it wider, I'd have no problem with that. I don't see how you give Tyron Woodley more than that, actually. I think I was giving Woodley the benefit of the doubt quite a lot. I I don't see how you give him five rounds out of the eight. Um, and yeah, uh, you're right. Look, it isn't worth spending too much time dissecting this as a price fight. Right. Jake Paul is almost certainly the worst pay-per-view main event A-side we've ever seen. But, you know, and officially he squeaked past the 39-year-old making his boxing debut. Right. Um, if we judge this fight the way that we judge showbox undercard fights, we'd be giving both guys a hard time and probably mm. saying we don't need to see either of them again, right? But that's not the level on which we need to sort of look at this. Uh, you, Again, with regards to Jake Paul, for a guy with no amateur experience and only four pro fights, he's he's not terrible. Um, he shows smarts in the ring. Um, 
I think he also learned today just what boxing is really all about. I think he felt like he did up to this point, but now this is the first time that he's really realized when you are in the ring and you're up against someone with a reasonable talent and stamina, there's a real chance that you're going to be taken to places you haven't been before and very, very uncomfortable places they are. I, I know he's taking this seriously. I know he's working hard. Um, and he packed an arena. He packed a freaking arena. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other side of the coin is that he did beat a former UFC champion. I, I think if anything impressed me about Paul is that he does show some boxing IQ. He feints and he doesn't bite on his opponent's feints. He shows some decent movement. Most importantly, he showed balls. He bit down and made it through a serious gut check moment. Uh, Good for him, man. Look, he doesn't have to do any of this. He could be raking in money doing his other YouTube stuff and not taking punches or putting in the hours in the gym. Uh, Based on his post-fight interview, although that was obviously in the immediate aftermath, uh, it sounds like he might actually decide to take some time and think about whether he wants to actually do this. Although Woodley got him all excited again by demanding an immediate rematch. Um, And as for Woodley, you know, I I expected more from Woodley as a man who certainly hasn't boxed before, but has been a professional prize fighter. And I thought after that third round, you know, I thought he was showing his... Um, actually, it wasn't the third round, was it, that he scored that he that he initially uh, uh, scored that knockdown? It might have been later right. than that, wasn't it? I but, believe it was. Um, I believe it was the fourth where he it knocked was uh, Paul into the ropes. Yeah. Yeah, it goes to show how how riveting a fight it was. I thought I got that. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I thought after that moment he would actually show his experience and start turning it up, and he didn't do that. And he allowed uh, a real novice to go through the gut check and then come back and get a second wind and and. Uh, you know, and make it to the end. So I was actually a bit disappointed in, in Woodley, who showed a lot more fight in the post-fight interview than I thought he did during the fight. But I think the thing that most impresses me about Jake Paul is the fact that he used his fame and fan support to showcase some real boxers on this card, including some really good boxers. And the likes of Amanda Serrano and Daniel Dubois and Montana Love got a lot more eyeballs than they otherwise would have done. Um, so good for him. Uh, he's doing what he's doing. All the best to him. But I feel like we saw the first time signs tonight uh, that this act may actually have a shelf life. Yeah, you can only pick and choose carefully selected opponents for so long before you have to step it up and you get either what we got here where he show his limitations are very clear or you get what we might be getting soon which is him getting knocked out by somebody a little better than this um it's interesting um you, you said you had it 77 75 and uh couldn't really see it any closer than that i actually did score it closer than that i scored it 76 76 um oh, okay. but and you heard me at the beginning kind of scoff at the idea of 77 75 for woodley which was only one round off from from me but to me, I thought there were four clear Jake Paul rounds, two clear Woodley rounds, and two close rounds, both of which I scored for Woodley. I'm not sure how you possibly get to five rounds for Woodley, even though I was only one round off for that. But it did feel like if anyone deserved the win, it probably was Jake Paul. Um, my one observation about Paul, what he can learn from this, he was burning some nervous energy right from the start. He needs to work on that or he's going to gas out badly and, and pay the price against slightly better opposition if that ever comes. But, yeah, just trying to keep this in perspective. I, I It's exactly what you said. If these were showbox guys, we would be giving them a hard time because we're expecting them to perform like pro boxers. For pro boxers, these guys are not good. But for novices, they trained hard. They tried hard. This wasn't Screech against Horshack, you know? Uh, it, it wasn't good, <laughs> but it wasn't embarrassing either. Yes. No, agreed. Agreed. Um, you know, I talked about the undercard. Let's talk about the undercard. Yeah. Before we talk about the real quote-unquote fights that we made predictions for, let's talk about that opening bout because that directly relates to this main event. Um in that opener, Tyson Fury's half-brother Tommy dominated, really, against Anthony Taylor, winning the four-rounder by unanimous scores of 40-36. to 36. And watching him in action, this is the first time I've seen him in action, I can certainly see why, in addition to the famous name and the genes uh, and the fact that presumably, you know, there's the hope that Tyson Fury would be part of the publicity and the build-up, I can see why Jake Paul would want to fight him next. He's... 
also not very good. Um, but you know, there, this was really being set up really in many ways that, that the idea was that Fury would win, that Paul would win, and that then we'd see these guys next. Um, you know, Fury did his bit and, and called him out. Paul seemed a bit reticent to, you know, to figure out what to do next. Mm. But I think the plan was for both guys to score knockouts. Uh, Fury didn't. And given the fact that he did go the distance and the fact that the crowd booed the fight at the end yeah. and actually was so unimpressed that they didn't even bite when Fury did the, yeah, go on Cleveland thing. That didn't even work. <laughs> uh, so did he mess up that shot or has he at least diminished the appeal of the matchup? Yeah, m- maybe, you know, uh... I give him credit that he acknowledged afterwards that he looked mediocre and even said something to the effect of that Jake Paul should have no excuse for not wanting to fight him next off this performance. So if that was the goal, to look meh enough to make Jake Paul comfortable, mission accomplished. But uh, yeah, it it definitely took a bit of luster off the potential matchup. Um, I said when we were previewing it that I thought Fury would come in as a small favorite against Paul if they both won. But by the end of the Fury fight, I kind of thought otherwise. I kind of thought, wow, Jake Paul's actually going to be favored against this guy. Then by the end of the Paul Woodley fight, I just had no idea who would be favored uh, between these two. Um, But I think part of the potential appeal of Paul Fury was the idea of Jake Paul trying to beat a quote unquote real boxer Mm. for the first time. I'm not sure Fury is such a real boxer. Yeah. He's, he's such a neophyte himself. Uh, he's coming off a fight in which he got booed. Not that it can't be marketed. It, it can, but yeah. it did lose a little luster. And, um, geez, Tommy Fury, could he fight less like his half-brother? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he's, uh, he, he's not fluid. He has zero head movement. Uh, he held his opponent, Anthony Taylor, whenever he got close. I, I thought he could have made the fight easy if he used the jab more. I mean, he won by shutout, no doubt about it, but he has a very long road to being a serious contender. Good-looking kid, has the Fury name. Great on the mic. Uh, Yeah, good on the mic, too. So maybe just being part of the Jake Paul sideshow-type fights is the best he can hope for, based on what we saw from him in the ring. Um, But, you know, like, I hate to knock him. We like to credit anyone who steps into the ring and puts on the gloves, but... He is not impressive to me as a boxer at all at this point in his career. No, there was that moment where uh, Ariel Hawani, who was who I thought was very good on the broadcast and, mm. and whose job was clearly there to be the MMA fans guide to the boxing that they were watching, sort of asked Al, you know, do you see anything, Al, that makes you think that Tommy can be as good as his half-brother? And Al, bless his heart, was wonderfully diplomatic. Well, you know, he's got a few things to learn. I would have just been, no. Um, <laughs> right. Because as you said, he's very, very... I mean, Tyson is obviously unique in the way that he fights. And um, yeah, that Tommy is is, is is different. But like you said, full credit to him. He's trying to do it properly. Um, uh, we'll see how it goes. Of course, Tyson Fury, once early in his career, punched himself in the face. And he ended up doing fine, didn't he? <laughs> So who knows? He did, but I am going to just go ahead right now and write off Tommy Fury ever being yeah. as good as Tyson Fury. Indeed. All right. Okay. Let's go to the first of the quote-unquote real fights. Um, Montana Love dropped Ivan Baranchik hard at the end of the seventh round of their fight. Uh, and although Baranchik hauled himself to his feet without great authority, it must be said, before the completion of the count and insisted he was okay to continue... As uh, soon as he made it back to the corner, trainer Pedro Diaz immediately began cutting off his gloves, uh, which made it a TKO7, which is exactly what you called in the prediction. Um, and up until that point, it was a fun fight. Mm-hmm. Um, Love was uh, way ahead on all three scorecards at the time of the stoppage, and deservedly so. But it was a really fascinating clash of styles, real bullfight, uh, bullfight, you know, bull against Matador kind of thing. Love being the matador, but really spearing Baranchik with some beautiful counters and um, and increasing the pressure as he went along, but still occasionally getting cracked himself, including by a big left hook at the end of round five. But I thought Love was showing good movement, mm-hmm. some very nice sharp counters, as I said. Um, unlike the much better paid, quote unquote, analysts for Barstool Sports, who we saw on the pay-per-view, you and I, 
both called a Montana love win. Uh, what did you think of his performance? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we we called it. Uh, one of us more precisely one of us called it very well. the other. Yes, 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 five points. Thank you very we'll much, Pedro that, Diaz. Major, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, the Barstool guys picked Baranchik because one of them said because of his name. One of them mentioned his body language at the weigh-in. They made their pick knowing nothing about either fighter. This is how sports books make money when people like this bet on the fights. Um, but uh, if people listen to our podcast, not that we knew Montana Love was going to win, but we at least had some insight into what these guys brought to the table. Um, I was really impressed with with Montana Love. Um, he was winning almost all the rounds, boxing really smoothly. Yes, he was aided very much by the fact that Baron Chick's reflexes are not what they once were, that he is uh, starting to get not shot, but definitely the beatings are accumulating and taking a toll. It still felt, however, like Baron Chick could have won it with one punch at any time. It had that kind of intrigue. You could see that he was hurting Love when he did land. And the scoring of the fight also could have been closer if the ref had called a knockdown one or two times when Love was being held up by the ropes. Um, But, you know, I think my main takeaway, just coming back to what you teased about the whole undercard, a lot of casual fans, maybe Jake Paul fans, might become big Montana Love fans uh, from a performance like this. Yeah. This this was huge for his career, especially I could see him becoming a potential draw in Cleveland and this fight yeah. really being the launching pad for that. Yeah, and he's got that... He's just got that attitude, too, that you feel that the kind of fans who really like Jake Paul are probably going to get drawn to, right? He's just mm-hmm. got that wonderful arrogance at times in the ring. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in the heavyweight special attraction, Daniel Dubois got back to winning ways after losing to Joe Joyce last time out, uh, decking a horribly overmatched Joe Cusimano three times and scoring a stoppage in the first round. And I pictured you looking at your East Coast time zone clock and channeling Larry Merchant with a Daniel Dubois, I love you. <laughs> uh, that that fight took about two minutes. I think we can probably discuss it in uh, less time, can't we? I would hope so. Uh, go ahead, start the clock. Uh, let's see if we can keep it under two minutes. I, I would say first off about Kusumano. That's what you get for entering the ring to Thunderstruck. You don't do yes. that. That is sacrilege. Exactly. Um, but... You know, again, coming back to the same thing that I basically just said against about Montana Love, this was a good chance for Dubois to impress viewers seeing him for the first time. I would think someone who doesn't totally know what they're looking at uh, might come away wondering, wow, did I just watch the new Mike Tyson um, to see a heavyweight bowl another heavyweight over in two minutes? Um, We learned nothing really about Dubois. We learned that Kusumano doesn't have a great chin. But he did keep punching back. I'll give him that. That's the one positive I'll say for Kusumano. For as long as he was in there, he was throwing punches and trying. But uh, yeah, this was um, not going to give any huge plaudits to the matchmaking on this one. Indeed. Uh, In the co-main, I think we do give plaudits to the matchmaking. Uh, Amanda Serrano retained her 126-pound titles by unanimous decision win over a game Yamaleth Mercado. Scores of 97, 93, 98, 92, 99, 91. Honestly, I thought the first two were too close, and maybe even the third one was. Um, That said, I have to give Mercado credit. I think I undersold her when we were previewing this. I I thought she proved much better than I expected. She was very game, and she managed to land some good scoring punches in the close exchanges, especially in the first half of the fight. But gosh, Serrano was clearly on a different level, and and by the end, she had Mercado badly bust up with her left eye closing. I... This is a hobby horse of mine, but with three-minute rounds, she would have surely scored yes. the stoppage win that we both predicted. But that's another round uh, I've certainly gone on plenty of times. Uh, look, I love Amanda Serrano. I love watching her fight. I love her compactness, her balance, her short punches, her hand speed, and her body attack. Oh, her body attack was wonderful on Sunday night. Um, afterward, Ariel Hawani asked her about facing Katie Taylor. And apart from that being a great matchup, just one-on-one, and as we've discussed, one that we came close to getting before, uh, it would also have pound-for-pound consideration. Um, You know, she is surely one of the top three pound-for-pound in women's boxing. And honestly, if you look at the range of weights at which she's won world titles, I'd probably have her second only to Claressa at this point, and, and maybe not by a lot. And in fact, given her dominance and her KO ratio... 
She could make a case for being number one, except for the fact that she's far too modest to say so. Even if her, <laughs> even if her brother-in-law is apparently not even remotely as nice and quiet as she is. No. Um, look, we've talked about this uh, with all this undercard, and mostly what I liked about the fight was that we saw it, and that hundreds of thousands of viewers will see exactly how many in time got to see it. And it seems like it was particularly thanks to Jake Paul for ensuring that happened. Just go back to what we've talked about, you know, with Dubois and Montana Love. How much do you think this exposure will have done for her and for women's boxing? Uh, before I answer that, I'll just, since you were touching on the pound for pound there, I'll say sure. that uh, I have a really hard time choosing between Serrano and Shields right now. I, yeah. I think that, it, that it's a little easier for me to say that Katie Taylor is number three. Uh, she's yeah. just she's just been less dominant uh, than, than those other two have been lately. So uh, I, I have Katie Taylor third, and I don't know who I have at number one, because yeah. um, both of them, Serrano and Shields, have been dominant against the best opposition they can find. They can both box. They can both fight. Um, those are uh, you know just two outstanding fighters, regardless of gender, plain and simple. Um, yeah. But yeah, as, in terms of... Raising her profile, um, she definitely did, uh, although probably with less success than Montana Love and yeah. uh, maybe even with less success than Daniel Dubois, although we yeah. didn't see much of him. She didn't get the KO, uh, much to the dismay of my pizza collection. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure how perfectly her obvious skills translated to a more casual audience. Um, gotcha. But, yeah. you know... As someone who has spent her whole career being perhaps a bit underpublicized and underrecognized, this was definitely productive. I, I'm just not sure it was the glass-shattering moment that maybe she was hoping for, but she certainly fought well. I, th I thought she won every round. Uh, yeah. I could see giving one round to Mercado. I am not sure how judges gave her two rounds or three rounds. That scorecard just had me shocked uh even though yes. it was immaterial ultimately uh serrano's body work was so impressive oh, yeah. and uh, i'm surprised mercado was able to take it as well as she did i thought the ko yeah. might come because of the body work wearing her down but um certainly have to give mercado a ton of credit for her toughness especially those last two rounds when her face was getting extremely yeah. messy and it was uh fun to see mercado pump her fists over just making it to the final bell. That yeah. was victory for her. She was determined. She was focused. Just a bit overmatched. Serrano, too good. Her punches too sharp and short. And uh, I will finish by echoing exactly what you started with. If they fight 10 three-minute rounds, that is a knockout. No doubt about it. 100%. All right. We... As we mentioned, did not make predictions for either Fury Taylor or Paul Woodley, but we did for the three fights in between. Uh, we each picked Amanda Serrano to win by KO, you in seven, me in eight. And as we just discussed, she won by decision. So we each got one point there. We both picked Daniel Dubois to win by KO, which he did, although we both got the round wrong. So we each got two points there. But... The difference maker on this evening was Montana Love, Ivan Baranchik. I picked Love by decision, and you nailed it with a KO7. God damn it, Pedro Diaz, you could have just <laughs> let him stand up for a second in round eight. But as it is... The check is in the mail, points. Pedro. <laughs> you get five points to my one, and that makes for a big shift in the standings. I began the night leading 52 points to 48. We end it tied. 56 56 i can feel the tension building <laughs> indeed four months to go in the year all tied up this is this is uh, what they tune in for kieran this kind of drama is it is it that's good that's good i'm glad all right i don't quite have you where i want you yet <laughs> nobody we'll has anybody where they want them if we're tied no, right no. exactly i think that's correct yes okay. exactly all right it is time now for this week's guest and we have been blessed over the course of this podcast to have interviewed award winners hall of famers the cream of the boxing crop but it's all been building up to this moment we are joined now by a man among men, one of the seminal figures in contemporary boxing, publicist to the stars, and former winner of the Boxing Writers Association of America Good Guy Award. Uh, in all seriousness, for those who don't know him, uh, he's been the man helping craft the press releases and media strategies for some of the biggest fights and fighters over the last 20 plus years. And he is also genuinely one of the very nicest people in the business and a very good friend. He is the one and only 
Mr. Fred Sternberg. Fred, thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, fellas. I got to tell you, you know, you bring up that good guy award, and, and I have to admit, I had to step on a lot of people to win that award. <laughs> That's the way things go sometimes. Uh, nothing nothing is just handed to you, but uh, you, you are very deserving of that good guy award. And uh, I always tell people you are, without a doubt, one of the top two Freds in the Pacquiao inner circle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you talk about that Marvin Cohn good guy award. I just recently settled the litigation with Marvin Cohn's family over defaming him. <laughs> <laughs> I barely even know who Marvin Cohn is. As far as <laughs> in my mind, it's the Fred Sternberg good guy. <laughs> there you go. That's right. So uh, before we get into talking about Manny and Freddie and Gennady Golovkin and some of the other luminaries you've been the publicist for, I want to ask you, where did it all begin? How did a guy from Washington, D.C. get started on the road to becoming a preeminent boxing publicist? Well, you know, it started back in 85. I was uh, I had dropped out of law school. I was doing selling real estate. Hated all of it. And then someone introduced me to a guy named Charlie Brotman, who at the time was like the sports and entertainment PR guy in uh, Washington. So uh, I did an unpaid internship with him and uh, I loved it. So I stuck around for 13 years. And by the time I left to join America Presents, I had uh, moved up to be his vice president, still making the same salary, unpaid, but you know, <laughs> it was a great experience. <laughs> that, and that was where I first uh, came to know of you is when you started working at America Presents, started getting these faxes, uh, press, re press release faxes from a new name, this Fred Sternberg guy, and uh, you've been in my life ever since. Oh, uh, lucky you. <laughs> 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 it's funny, you know, in DC, Charlie brought in my introduction to boxing with Charlie was Sugar Ray Leonard's PR guy from his AAU days till I think through 89, which was, um, I think, the last Durant fight. And then in between, we were doing things with Riddick Bowe when he was on his way up. We did a few fights in DC with him. Uh, I worked with some locals like Daryl Coley and Reggie Green and Simon Brown, and uh, a lot of them got world title shots. So, it was great grassroots um, uh, preparation and an education. And uh, all of these guys, you know, had a good sense of humor and let me do the crazy things uh, that I uh, kind of am known for. And that's what got me noticed by America Presents. They were a client of ours for a year and then they hired me away and I moved. Mm. To, uh, I took the boat over to Denver in 98. Right. right. And, and, and like everyone else, you're still waiting for that last check from Matt Tinley to clear, I assume. <laughs> I got him. <laughs> we settled on the courthouse steps, but we got it. All right. <laughs> right, right. Just, just Tony the tycoon to go, and then you'll be good. Um, <laughs> hey, in, uh, in all seriousness, um, what do you think makes a good publicist, right? So for a lot of us media folks, all we see really, we'll get the, the press releases, we'll ask for interviews, we maybe, you know, see you in the corral in, in the in the media room. But there's a lot more that goes on behind that. And what do you think makes a good publicist as opposed to just somebody who just does that, just sends out those press releases? For me, what I have found that works is um, research and in, in just elbow grease. You got to know your product. So know who your fighter is, find out so some good stories about him or people around him. And of course, if they're the goods and they keep winning, that always helps as well. So um, it's always a combination of that and knowing what to do. And, you know, it's one thing to get an interview. You got to do follow through. You got to make sure the interviews happen. You got to make sure your fighter is prepared. You got to make sure you're, you know, at any of your clients, uh, whether it's a promoter, a fighter, it's all the above, um, know what they're talking about. So everyone's on the same page. So whatever the theme is for that, sh that fight that's leading up from the day you announce it to the day it happens, you want to stay on track and just keep, you know, beating on it. And uh, you get a lot of rejection in the beginning with some of these contenders who people don't know about. Mm. So, you know, you got to brush that off and just keep plowing ahead. You can't hit a home run every time, but, you know, as long as you take your swings and, you know, you can connect one out of three, four times, you're in good shape. So, I assume there's also a lot of sort of developing goodwill, right? And so, journalists know you're not going to screw them and you're not going to tell them that there's a story when there really isn't and that that kind of stuff it's a bit long building up that long-term trust as well you got to be honest you, you can't say this guy was a Nobel prize winner and he comes out and you can't read a comic book that that's not going to work too well but uh 
it's it's one thing to have some fun with what's going on, but at the at the end of the day, the press's credibility, you know, rests on what you give them. And if they write a story that's false because you gave them something that was false, you're not going to last too long in this business in any public relations facet, you know, well, business, uh, whatever. And uh, so, yeah, you've got to, you know, you got to be fairly honest and, um, you know, be able to prove it, and, you know, and, uh, and if the story's good, it just keeps going. So. Right. You hit on one of the challenges of the job, which is uh, sometimes having your uh, releases and emails ignored or rejected with a, a less known fighter, that sort of thing. Uh, what, what do you, what are the most enjoyable and least enjoyable parts of being a publicist? I don't know if that one makes the least enjoyable list, just sort of the, the rejection part or what, what, what are the most and least enjoyable parts of the job? Well, you know, I've been turned down a lot of times and it's not like I say, okay, see you later. I'll think about it. And I'll just say, I'll either ask them why they don't like it and see if there's another route. Or I'll try and figure it out myself and I'll keep hammering them. I'm not going to be a, um, a, a, a pest. I, you know, if they say no, it's no and they have no interest. Okay, uh, you move on. Otherwise, you're creating an enemy and you'll never get another story from these people. Um, what I always love is, um, A, it's the challenge of creating whatever the theme is for the campaign. And then, you know... When, then you sit back the day of the, or the week of the fight and you're seeing everything that you've been doing interviews mm. for for the last six weeks, all of a sudden mm. they come pouring through and it's because you planned ahead and you had these things done. If you start, you know, the week before fight week and hope that you're going to get all these stories, you're not going <laughs> to do too well. And, uh, and you got to expand your horizons. You know, in boxing, it's easy to go to the beat writers who are working for these websites and a few newspapers that are still covering it. But um, like with Pacquiao, if you look at what we did fight week, we, he was in the New Yorker. He was in New York magazine. He was in GQ. He, I mean, there were a lot of things that uh, expanded his attraction you know, to, to other audiences. I mean, you hope that translates to sales that take you above your core boxing audience. So to me, that's the kick is finding something new and different and uh I know I keep bringing up Manny, but for all these people, it was, uh, you know, when I worked with Daryl Coley, his manager, Barry Lindy, was a successful builder, had a Harvard degree, an MBA from Wharton, and that was unheard of, you know, who, who goes into boxing with that kind of pedigree, and uh, he was a story too, and it was kind of a contrast of these two people, how they found each other, and, you know, that, that took us a long way as well, so. Um, you, you mentioned M Manny, so let's sort of start to talk about that. Look, Freddie Roach is never slow to say that, you know, basically Manny is going to end up defining his his career uh, as a trainer, as a coach. Um, and Manny always gives credit to Freddie. But it, I honestly think it's not an exaggeration to say that you're a very important part of that team since you've been involved. You're the one who's kind of helped shape their images and, shall we say, suggest some of the things that they've been reported to have said. Um, I'm curious... When did your relationship with them begin? Was it after that Morales fight when Manny left Murad Muhammad, or was it before that? It was it was during that fight. That was the first fight I ever did with uh, Manny. Was um, the first Morales fight. So I guess that was fall of two thousand four. I was introduced to him, and the fight was I think January of two thousand five. I had known Freddie previously from uh, working with Tyson. Uh, he had a, mm -hmm. a couple fights with him, and that's how we got to know each other. So um, Murad, uh, it was suggested by Top Rank, who was really, they were co-promoters, but Top Rank was doing all the work for the first Morales fight that they hired, um, that he hired me. And uh, so he did. And um, I never really had much interaction with Murad and uh, it was all Top Rank. And frankly, I didn't have a whole lot of interaction with Manny that first fight because his English was so limited mm -hmm. and no one wanted to send me anywhere to camp or whatever. I think I went to camp once or twice to do a conference, just to make sure he was at the phone to do a conference call. Can you imagine spending money for that? And then I think we backed it up with a media day the next day, a workout or something. And so I was on the phone with Freddie talking about things and you know, we came up with different things to give a little intrigue to the fight, not that it needed. It was a great fight, but you know, you had to keep it out there until fight week. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a relationship with anyone and there was nobody in camp to put him on the phone or do these interviews. So 
uh, we got a little creative and uh, we started something called Manila Ice and uh, that was his secret That's weapon and uh, kind of took off. No one knew what it was. We still don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but we know it worked. And, uh, and, that, and I mean, we go to the weigh-in and it's Manila Ice, Manila Ice. People are wearing t-shirts saying Manila Ice. And I'm like, what the hell? And, you know, even Larry Merchant comes up to me and he's pulling me aside in the press room during fight week. Can you tell me what, just tell me. And I'm like, Larry, sworn to secrecy. <laughs> I mean, I, it's unbelievable when you see it, but, you know, I, I can't tell you, but if he connects with this thing, oh my God, <laughs> he gets pissed. Then they have him in the fighter meeting and they're asking him, is it, oh, it's the right hook, right? And he's like, no. And he's like looking at me and I'm like, and I'm shaking my head. He goes, no, it's not the right hook. And it's this, not, and he wouldn't, and he played along, you know, and the, without really us knowing each other. Oh, that's <laughs> the beginning of it. And gradually, our relationship got a little better. His English got better. So I didn't understand him, but he could understand me. And that's really all that matters. <laughs> and I, I think the relevance of Manila Ice actually outlasted the rapper whose name it was based on. So, <laughs> yeah. so <they> that. <laughs> Scott Curtin, every time he sees me, goes, Ice Ice, baby. <laughs> um, so I'm curious about the differences between working with Manny and working with Freddie. And, and you kind of touched on, on some of this in terms of uh, the way you guys got started. Uh, Manny is, shall we say, not always the most quotable of interviews, at least when speaking English, whereas Freddie seems to like talking to people and gives great quotes. Um, I can picture you and Freddie workshopping quotes together, but, but, but Manny being happy to be left alone and, and let you come up with some words to put in his mouth as long as they aren't anything he'd be offended by. Is that an accurate assessment of how it tends to work behind the scenes? Well, because Freddie is here in the States and I work with him on other, you know, fighters and other events and there have been, you know, I helped him out, you know, when um, he had the, uh, uh, the, uh, the series on HBO. Right. Uh, Freddie Roach, whatever it was called. And um, so we, we, you know, we're just close friends. So uh, we are always talking, you know, cause I'm planning schedules for him if he needs interviews or whatever. And um, so, yeah, we kind of gravitate to, you know, I'll, I'll always ask him what he thinks of whatever the event is we're doing and he'll tell me, and then, you know, we work on it and uh, nothing goes out unless he approves it. Same with Manny. It's, you know, it's their words eventually. And, uh, but I always get that just, first from them. And that's really what's important no matter who you're working with is find out what these people are about ahead of time regarding whatever subject uh, or event you're working on. And even with Manny, you know, when I'm in camp and no one does this anymore, he's the last of having a PR guy in camp. You know, I sit in with him for a week or so and I'm hearing these interviews at the press conference. And things. I, all, I know what he's about on this for this fight or that opponent. And so, you know, we'll sit uh, before, you know, while he's wrapping his hands and we'll ask, I'll ask him to do a Q and a, you know, and if somebody's got some questions or if I have some questions and, uh, and then I'll get some good quotes. And then, you know, uh, that's where the releases germinate from both guys. And, uh, gotcha. But with Manny, it's almost always when he's in the States, whereas with Freddie, you know, I've got the luxury of just having him around. So, and of course I do give Freddie a lot of advice on training. So. Of course. <laughs> Naturally, yes. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing at all, really. Uh, he, he's a good student. Yeah. <laughs> he's a pad guy. That's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so at his peak, you know, Oscar was enormous, of course. And I think we almost forget now how huge he was. But and it felt, you know, when he retired, it's like, oh, who on earth is going to pick up the, the, the baton? But Manny... Good Lord. I mean, have you ever encountered a phenomenon quite like him? I mean, I mean, it felt as if all these ingredients early on all sort of came together. You know, there's the fact that he was this happy guy who smiled on his way to the ring and then beat the hell out of opponents, that he would have these concerts at the Mandalay Bay post-fight, you know, that he always said things like he always wanted to just please the people, all this kind of stuff all came together. Um, could you have imagined, when you had that first fight with him, with Eric Morales, is there any way you could have imagined exactly what a phenomenon it, it was that you were about to have uh, working with? Not at all. You know, those yeah. three fights with um, Morales, and then he had, you know, a couple of fights with Marquez and, uh, and then you had Barrera. And I mean, all the way up to 135, 
I knew he had a good sense of humor, but I mean, he's the goods and you can't make this thing up. I couldn't tell him to go sing a concert unless he wanted to sing a concert and had some kind of talent. So that's all him. And so it's gift wrapped. And I just ran with that kind of stuff. And um, he, he's just, he really, he gets it. He's a smart guy, even though, you know, he didn't have much of a formal education growing up because he couldn't afford it. He had to support his family. And he was a single parent household with, a, you know, several siblings. So for him to, to, to be able to do all these things and he is not bashful, he is not um, reticent. I mean, he's a, you could say he's a brave guy, but this guy just, he just likes to try new things and do it. And that's what his whole life's been about is like, give me the next challenge. I, I want this. I want to do that. In addition to, I want to help people. And I think eventually he learned this was a great platform to do all that. But up until we get to the 135 pound mark where he fights David Diaz with, for a title with no tune up, never being a lightweight before. I think we all thought, well, this is it. You know, he's, mm. he's gone from, uh, you know, what was it? 112 to 122 to uh, 126, 130, now 135. What could happen after that? <laughs> maxed out. One of the great lighter weight fighters of all time. And then um, he gets handed the golden ticket. You know, we got a guy for you. What do you think? And yeah. That's Oscar. Yeah. And that's when the world turned around. Yeah. And in combination with, you know, the beating Oscar obviously pushed him to another level. And I feel like in terms of the the sort of PR aspect, and you mentioned the singing, the, the Jimmy Kimmel live uh singing uh, uh, performances, I feel also kind of broke him through to the next level. Whose idea were those? Were those that, was that you coming from you? Was that coming from Manny? Was that Jimmy Kimmel? Where, where did that start? The Kimmel folks had reached out to me and, um, and I thought, Hey, this is the right time. It was around the Kodo fight and uh, he had already beaten Oscar. And so at this point, Manny has turned the world upside down and it was a calculated risk when they fought Oscar because Freddie had trained Oscar to fight Mayweather. So he, he knew inside and out, this was a fight that was easily winnable. And it was a, who, you can't lose type of fight unless you get hurt because it's Oscar. But Freddie knew. Freddie's knee-jerk reaction at first was no way. And Manny's like, move up to that weight. I just hit 135. You want me to fight a, a welterweight? Or at that point, he was a super welterweight. So right. then Freddie thought about it. And at 2 a.m., he calls Aaron. And he says, I've thought about it. We're going to do it. And Bob goes, you're sure? He goes, 100%. They had his number from day one. Mm-hmm. The whole training camp, you could see it. We were in Oscar's head. We, we, and Manny was just training like a beast. So now we move to the Kodo fight. And, I mean, this guy's like, he's everywhere. I mean, during that same week, he's on the cover of Time Magazine. And, uh, and then after the Kodo fight... You know, he's on 60 Minutes, the same night as Obama's first 60 Minute interview. It was just the two of them doing interviews. But for Kimmel, they came to me. They said, we heard he likes to sing. And I said, yeah. And so we, they, you know, Dan Manning agrees to do this Dan Hill song, Sometimes When We Touch. And and Jimmy wasn't even sold 100% on this. It was the bookers who believed in it. And they were all like, oh, God, please make sure he's here. Make sure he's in a good mood. And. And once Manny's interview was over, and I'm on the side of the stage with the booker, and John Carlin, and we're watching Manny do a solo. He's singing the song, and the biggest smile on Jimmy's face, like this, he could see what he had. And that was the first of like nine appearances on that show. Wow. Uh, and he's also doing skits in between. They had him taping all kinds of craziness, and uh, they loved him. And, you know, luckily we're down the street at Wildcard, so we could jump up there anytime they needed us. So, and those things were just, you know, it was lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you've talked about some of the, the favorite sort of PR uh, stunts and, and moments. Uh, I'm curious just about uh, favorite fights and events. Is there a particular event from your career with Manny that you look back on especially fondly and, and maybe one that you really don't? Well, you know, it's like, I, I wish the result was different for this fight, but this fight in the last three before, uh, last two before, Broner and um, uh, Thurman, were like the best training camps from a PR standpoint I have ever had. He, mm. he was just relaxed. I think maybe there's a certain sense of maturity, but he was anxious to do the interviews and he did good, re- very good interviews. And he was always telling a different story. It was always in the back, the, is he going to run for president or not? And it was a great hook 
when he ran for the Senate, oh, he could be the president. Well, now we're here, and it's not such a hook. It's it's re- reality's here. <laughs> and, you know, sadly enough, you know, I'm going to miss him if, if this is what happens, but I'm very happy for him if, if this actually turns into something that, that he wants to do and, and gets elected. But so those fights were fun. Um, you know, you look at how he just destroyed Hatton. I mean, that was oh, just... Yeah. And I remember... A fight or two later, I was like, you know, a, I was trying to make an analogy. You know, a golfer, when he hits a sweet spot, knows it's a great shot. Or a baseball player, when he hits the home run, he just knows. So I was trying to get from him, when you landed that punch, you know, what I was trying to get was when he landed that punch, did you know it when you landed it? Did you feel it before you actually saw him go? But the way it came out, I said, when did you know you had Hatton? And he goes, when I signed the contract. <laughs> I mean, it was just, he just knew this guy was tailor-made for him. Mm. So for me, a lot of people say, what is your favorite fight in terms of what's in the ring? To me, it's the buildup and the fun things that we do that lead up to it. You know, and you bring up Jimmy Kimmel and I've never had anyone on 60. Well, I had Riddick Bo, uh, Rock Newman on 60 Minutes, but getting him on 60 Minutes and the cover of Time Magazine. And I'm just like, oh, where does this end? And it's <laughs> never wanted to end. And some of it's just luck, you know, it's because he produced, but you talk about some fun events, you know, when he was doing the press conference with Chris Algieri, they do the face off and Algieri's towering over him. So only Manny would do this. I brought a chair over to Manny to stand on. So he'd be towering over him. And that was the photo they used. It was great. And both of them are just great guys. They had a good sense yeah. of humor about it. There was another time where we're finishing the press conference for one of the Marquez fights and everyone breaks off to print or TV and top rank had a camera crew. And I said, give me that mic. And I said, Manny, get over to that TV side and interview Marquez. And he does. He's like one of the reporters. He goes, how are you going to beat Manny Pacquiao? <laughs> tell me what's going on. It was a riot. And then for one of the Bradley fights, he grabbed someone's camera and started photographing him. I mean, mm. this guy is just, he's, not that every fighter has to be like this, hmm. but he gets it. And I'm forever spoiled because, you know, like Charlie Brotman had Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have been associated with Manny Pacquiao, who's a legend. No thanks to me, really, because he <laughs> is a legend. Hmm. And forever now, I'll be cursed looking for that white whale, you know, for the next right. Manny Pacquiao, which, of course, chances are we'll never find. So. Yeah. Um, well, you touched on it. We should talk about his, la- his most recent outing sure. against Ugas. Um, when did you realize it was just not going to be his night? It's funny. Every camp since he's since Broner, well, beginning with Broner, you wonder what you're seeing in training camp is what you're going to see in the ring because it's, they're two different things. And the saying is, you know, people, fighters get old in the ring. He had an extraordinary camp for uh, – Spence slash Ugas mm. both had the same, um, you know, handicap in terms of short notice on a new opponent, one with the left hand and one with the right hand. So you can't use that as an excuse and nor is he. And um, I'm looking at this fight and I must've been like the fourth round, like there's something wrong here. And then it hit me. He's not moving. Mm. He's just standing there flat footed. And I'm like, he should be buzzing in and out. There should be angles. And it, I just wasn't seeing it give Ugas credit for, you know, kind of dictating that fight. You know, uh, he was conservative with what he threw, but what, with what he threw was pretty darn accurate. And, uh, but Manny just wasn't the Manny we had seen even with Thurman moving around and doing his thing. So uh, that's when I thought this is going to be a long night. And um, I didn't keep score, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's legit that he lost. It was a close fight, but he lost. Yeah. So if, if you had to guess right now, do you think we've seen the last of Manny Pacquiao in the ring? I don't know. You know, I spoke to him briefly Sunday and, and we never really touched on it. But, um, you know, competitors just hate to walk out on a loss. Mm. And, uh, and I'm sure he's thinking, I could have beaten this guy, you know, if I had had another fight or if I had fought sooner. I, I know, you know, he's thinking – this and that. I think what's going to come down to is what his family wants him to do. And if if they're strong enough uh, to say, 
know, make a strong enough argument to say, you know, we really want to keep you healthy. Uh, you know, you've got half your, you know, more than half your life to go. Yeah. You've got kids and you've got politics and you've got uh, a lot of people who depend on you. Uh, it could be his last fight. But then again, Manny could say, you know what? I, I didn't really get hurt. And I think I know how to figure, I figured this out. Of course, the other guy may have figured a few things out too. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he may come back for a fight uh, that's not Ugas, or he may come back for the rematch. I, I wouldn't be surprised at, at any of the above. Okay. Um, just in case we have seen him in the ring for the last time, do you have plans to move to Manila to be the media relations <laughs> advisor for the next president of the Philippines? Well, uh, that happens. I would bet on Duterte. <laughs> <laughs> It'll depend what odds you're giving me whether I bet. <laughs> the expert would know. There you go. Now, I've told him uh, whatever I can do for advice, I'm here, but I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Man, what a thing that would be, right? What an extraordinary... I mean, whoever you find next as a big fighter, nothing could... Po- were that to happen, nothing could ever come close to that storyline. Oh, line. my God, no. I mean, we're... Yeah. In the U.S., we've seen, like, Bill Bradley and Jim Bunning. They've had second lives after their athletic careers where they've become uh, congressmen and senators and well-known and influential ones. But... And even Bradley, I think, made a, a try at the nation. Mm. But... To do it while you're still fighting. I mean, he did this as a congressman. He did this as a senator. And who knows? You know, if he says he's going to announce his decision in September. But I think you officially declare in October by law in, uh, in the Philippines. So if he wants to come back, you know, if the campaign season officially begins February. Well, you know, there's that window where you have a presidential candidate fighting for whatever. Right. I'm already working on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case. (laughs) Hey, um, look, thanks so much. It's been a real joy to have you. Oh, that was great. Um, I'll see you on the next Jack Welsh Memorial (laughs) bus ride to Big Bear. How about that? (laughs) It's just a small piece like the Hollywood stars wear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you a lot, Fred. It's been great to have you. Oh, this was great. I'm glad I showered now. <laughs> so you, might have to, you might have to again after us. <laughs> I was going to say you might have to. After the stink I put on this show. <laughs> Thanks so much, Fred. You got it. Thank you. All right, it is time now for this week's news segment. Uh, no real main event this time around, but a couple of contenders that would make decent chief supporting bouts. Uh, so let's start with those. Uh, first, the postponed Teofimo Lopez-George Cambosos lightweight championship bout has been rescheduled. And unusually, it will be on a Tuesday, October 5th, at the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden. And the IBF, uh, we don't normally mention the alphabet groups, but we'll mention them this time because they're doing something right. The IBF has mandated that both fighters be vaccinated for COVID-19. Of course, the fight was originally postponed because Lopez, who was not vaccinated, caught the virus. The other co-main level news item is a very different sort of item. Jamal Charlo was arrested on Wednesday on three charges of second-degree robbery, stemming from a dispute with a server in a San Antonio bar last month that allegedly resulted in his leaving without paying his tab. Any thoughts on either of these, Mr. Mulvaney? Well, the Charlo situation is embarrassing and unedifying. And as a very close friend of a number of present and former servers and knowing the crap they have to deal with at the best of times, and especially if I had to deal with in recent months, I am not sympathetic toward Jamal, um, even though he's always struck me as a really, really stand-up guy. Um, so apparently the story is that Jamal was in San Antonio for twin brother Jamal's fight with Brian Castaño. He was at this bar with some friends. And then when he went to pay, his card was declined three times. And look, that's embarrassing, right? I, many of us, have, especially those of us who chose to be media people full-time, know what that experience can be like. Um, one assumes that Charlo's pride was very greatly hurt, especially in front of all his friends. And instead of like asking one of his buddies to spot him, and maybe it was a really large bill and they couldn't afford to, I, I don't know. He re- allegedly accused the server of, of losing his card, demanded that she pay the bill, um, and then went over you know, to the pile of all the little black binders with the card and, and the receipts in, rifled through them, found his card 
took it and and took off. Um, he was briefly arrested, has posted bond. One suspects it's the kind of situation that will be resolved with with some kind of money and apology, mm-hmm. uh, assuming Charlo has enough money in his bank account. Um, <laughs> but if he thought he was embarrassed by the situation in the moment, it can only be worse now, right. uh, not only because of the legal repercussions and the publicity, but of course, the associated trolling. And my tweet of the week goes to junior middleweight and middleweight contender Demetrius Andrade. May not always be the most exciting of fighters, but is a sharp guy with a quick wit. And he jumped on this and he tweeted directly to Charlo. What's good at future of boxing? You need me to ask Eddie if he can still get you that seven million to fight me. If times are that tough, I got a debit card. Can get you a little cash to help a brother out. LMAO. Hashtag lawsuit. Tag Denny's Diner. Ouch. <laughs> that's great. That's a that's a really good tweet, and uh, I don't know if it gets uh, Andrade any closer to a Charlo fight, um, <laughs> but uh, you know helps him sort of uh, win the win, win the war of words in the public sphere at least. Right, indeed. Um, as for Lopez Camboso, it's great. I'm I'm glad to see they both have to be vaccinated. We talked about this just a week or so ago. That it really makes no sense given everything that's at stake for promoters or in this instance sanctioning bodies not to demand that the fighters on their cards be vaccinated uh they absolutely should um for once i'll actually say no more about that other than that it is good to see it or at least it's interesting to see a fight on a tuesday i'm not quite sure when it became the case that big fights or even any fights were really only on saturdays but uh, it'll be kind of interesting to see what kind of viewership they get for a tuesday night fight yeah all right uh moving on to another fight postponed by an unvaccinated boxer testing positive for COVID. Uh, this super middleweight bout between David Benavides and Jose Uscategui has been rescheduled for November 13th on Showtime. Uh, a couple other items. Terence Crawford's welterweight title defense against Sean Porter will go to a purse bid this Thursday, September 2nd. Two days after that, featherweights Josh Warrington and Mauricio Lara will meet in the ring in a rematch of one of the frontrunners for upset of the year atop a very good card featuring Katie Taylor and Connor Ben uh, in separate fights, of course. And in uh, positive news, the mayor of Flint, Michigan, has renamed Spencer Street, the street on which the, quote, Clarissa Shields grew up, as Clarissa Shields Street. Uh, that's great news. Uh, any thoughts or observations on those? I, I feel bad for whoever Spencer is or was, uh, but uh, but good for Clarissa. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe Spencer was an a-hole or a racist or something. Right. You never know. So maybe this is good news all around. Um, Warrington Lara I want to just comment on the betting since we don't plan to do a money punch episode this week. Um, The books have Lara as a slight dog about plus 125 and Warrington is about a minus 160 favorite. You might be able to shop around and get slightly better prices on one or the other. I haven't done that carefully yet, but the numbers are in that vicinity. And it's just kind of fascinating. It's a fairly binary decision. Was the first fight a fluke? If you're confident, yes. Then Warrington is a great bet. You can get him cheap now compared to when he was like minus 2,000 the first time. If you're confident, no. Then nice price on Lara. Um, I think I lean toward the latter. Lara has good power. His two losses came when he was a teenager. Uh, Warrington is good, but no world beater. We'll see if he can make adjustments, but I kind of lean toward a repeat here. Um not much to say about Crawford Porter, except let's see what happens with the purse bid. Uh, I, I know we both like this fight and hope it indeed mm-hmm. happens. Um, and Benavidez Uzcategui, there are whispers of Gary Antoine Russell being the new third bout on that card. So the universe uh, might be giving us our opportunity to complete the Gary Russell podcast nice. interview trifecta. That would work. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's close out the show with the reveal of your next top five list assignment. Uh, I wanted to do something spinning off the possibly ending career of Manny Pacquiao. And my first thought was the obvious thought. Top five Manny fights slash wins slash performances, something like that. Uh But we don't do the obvious round here. Hell no. Uh, We think outside the box, if only slightly. Uh, Your assignment, Kieran, spinning off two clients of Fred Sternberg's, Manny and his trainer, Freddie Roach, Uh is to come up with a list of the top five most iconic fighter-trainer combos of the last 50 years. Uh, Yeah, so now the fact that I'm spinning it off Manny and Freddie is a bit of a spoiler, I guess, in that I assume they will be on there, but maybe not. It's your list. You might come up with five more iconic duos. I went with last 50 years, A, because it's a nice round number, uh, B, 
it basically represents the modern era. Uh, fighter and trainer had to be working together sometime between 1971 and present, though their partnership can certainly predate that. Uh, sure. there's, a, there's a certain 60s, 70s heavyweight champ who we uh, tend to view as the start of the modern boxing era, I suppose. Um, so he would be included in this. Um, and I also just wanted to ease your burden a bit and not make you research all the old timers. Uh, sorry to the Joe Lewis, Jack Blackburn heads out there. <laughs> um, and, and I thought a lot about how to phrase this, and I went with iconic over best. I, I think it's more interesting to focus on duos who were not just successful, but are really thought of as a team. The trainer was prominent in the picture, etc. So there you go. Top five most iconic fighter trainer duos of the last 50 years. Have at it. I really like that one quick question. Mm -hmm. um, if you pick one a trainer with one fighter, can you also... There are very few occasions where one trainer is very closely associated with two fighters uh -huh, uh -huh. um is that okay or... i think i think that is totally fine a, tra a trainer can appear on the list twice i suppose a f it's unlikely that you'll come up with any fighters who had sure. iconic runs with two different trainers but you might um and so yeah i think that would be i think that would be fine i, I know of one trainer in particular who you might be thinking of yeah uh and so uh, if if you believe that uh two of the top five fighter trainer iconic duos are uh, involved the same trainer i think that's fine very well i like that that'll be fun yes that's good. Yeah, that's actually requires a little bit more effort than actually just top five Manny Pacquiao fights as well. So. <laughs> I think so. And I and I think we kind of did. Didn't we do like a top 10 Manny fights or moments or something uh, back in the HBO days at one point? Probably. So you probably it would have had to been updated a little bit. But uh, yeah, this is a like I said, not way outside the box, but a little bit outside the box. Yeah. It was probably during that eight month spell when we had no HBO fights to <laughs> talk about. And... So, anywho, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. <laughs> uh, look, many thanks indeed to our good friend Fred Sternberg for joining us. That was as, as fun and informative as we thought it would be. Uh, we will be back next week when, among other things, we preview Oscar De La Hoya against Vitor Belfort. God help us. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>